tell me how you want to, uh, where you want to go and what you want to talk about. Well, um, because it's the first time we, we're going to do a, a, you know, a sizable interview, I wanted to sort of look at the, you know, the long history of longs, yeah, you know, going, going back 140-odd years or whatever, just quickly, quickly through that, and then perhaps the modern history with your family in particular. Um, right present day and uh, you know we're not going to be able to avoid talking about covid and presidential elections and that sort of thing at some point and uh, and then uh, you know how things are going to look in the future yeah yeah uh, no i appreciate that um yeah so the, the quick history is yeah 140 year olds uh, uh company um you know founded right here in boston uh, obviously been around a long time and and uh well certainly not the oldest i think it's it's among among the oldest um what's interesting about the us is there are so many old names that are still still around uh, Thomas Long started it. Um, it's a claim to be the oldest jeweler in the. In yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's hard to. Uh, it's one of those things. It's hard to back up, but it's also hard to refute. Nice. Um, so, you know, Thomas Long started the company. Um, there's a little bit of a gray area early on that we actually lost some of the history. We've tried to reconstruct it, uh, but we do know that Longs ended up in the hand in the in the family of uh, Brooks of Canada when Brooks owned a whole bunch of U.S. properties, including Shreve Crump and Lowe and Shreve and Company and Caldwell's and CDP Peacock and all that. Um, and, and so one part of the, this, our story is that this, this long history of longs that, that then went through Canada and Burks. You know, the other side of it is my family, uh, where my grandfather started a store um, in Massachusetts, in Lynn, Massachusetts, called Ross Jewelers. Um, no relation to Ross Simon, um, but he, he was always known with his last name, Rottenberg. He was just always known as Mr. Ross. Um, I think it was just a comfortable abbreviation for him. So he started a store. My father came into business um, in the 60s and grew it to uh, a chain. At the time, we were um, there were a lot of uh, malls being built. And at that time, uh, there really were no national brands. You know, even Zales and K's weren't, were, were regional players. And so as these malls were being built, uh, my father put a Ross jeweler in a lot of the local malls. Um, he, but he always loved the long history of some of these other brands like Longs and, and, and Shreve Crump and Lowe and Treves in, in Boston. And so when Burks ran into their trouble back in the late 80s, early 90s, he jumped in and, and was able to uh, get Longs as, as the wheels were falling off of the Burks U.S. enterprises and they filed for bankruptcy. And so uh, Longs ended up coming into our hands. We operated both brands for a period of time, um, but it was clear that Longs with its history uh, with its better name, uh, had better brands, both, uh, you know, timepieces and, uh, and especially jewelry. Um, and the malls were clearly changing, you know, where, where for decades malls were a great place for us to be. Uh, they went more towards younger audience, younger demographic, uh, the rise of the gaps, uh, a company like that, that, that catered to the youth. Um, and so we didn't want to be there anymore. So it was easier for us to consolidate down to one brand, which was, and we bet on longs, uh, close some underperforming locations in some of those malls that really had gone downhill um, and focus on, you know, doing more with fewer doors. Okay. And, and I guess the, I guess the move there is to try and make Longs a real destination uh, jeweler somewhere, somewhere worth getting, jumping in the car and getting to. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we figured out really in the late nineties, mid to late nineties that uh, getting away from malls and having whether freestanding or lifestyle center stores, larger footprint, uh, we, we didn't, we could be a destination and we could deliver a much better experience, have a much better product offering, offer additional services in these larger footprint stores away from the malls. So that, that was really 
it, again, started in the 90s and just became our future. So most of our locations were were originally in malls nearby. So we're in Burlington. I don't know if you know Boston or, or the suburbs of Boston at all. Um, oops, hold on one second. Sorry, I got a call coming through. Just got to end this. Uh, there we go. Am I back? Yeah, there yeah. we go. Um, I just updated my um, my phone's operating system, and that was new. That had happened. Now it actually came across and blocked you off. Wow. Anyway, um, so uh, so we were we were in the Burlington Mall. We're across the street from that now. We were in uh, north of Boston in Peabody, Massachusetts. We were in the North Shore Shopping Center. Now we're across the street um, in Nashua, New Hampshire, sales tax free New Hampshire. We were in the Pheasant Lane Mall. We're literally across the street. <laughs> so we like uh, we like the demographics and we like the access to highways that the malls offer, but we want to be nearby in our own footprint. Right. And, and tell, give me a little bit about your, um, your family tree and when, you know, the, the Rottenbergs got, got involved either well, in Rostewers and, and, and then in Longs. Yeah. So as I said, my grandfather started, say again? Give me the names involved and who's related to who. Sure, sure. So uh, my grandfather, Hyman, uh, H-Y-M-A-N, Hyman Rottenberg, he he started uh, in the industry. Um, my father came in, uh, you know, the '60s, 1960s. Uh, Bob Rottenberg, um, and and he really he was the visionary that drove the the growth of the of the company. So he's the one that that opened up multiple Ross stores. He's the one that drove the acquisition of of Longs. Um, and uh, again, I'm getting these. So I apologize. <laughs> I think it's because I think it's because election day. I gotta... I still hear you though, so you can keep talking. Excellent. All right, gotcha. Um, and so uh, that that his visionary, he's the visionary that did that. Um, my brother Judd J U D D, he came in the family um, in the family business almost right out of college. So in the '90s, he joined. He worked briefly uh, for a diamond site holder to learn. Um, about that side of the business to learn from the manufacturing side. Um, I, I took a different path. Um, I, I joined the company 15 years ago um, and I spent the first 10 years of my career doing other things. So I was on Wall Street um, out of college and working for a private equity fund. Um, helped, I did some entrepreneurial things. I helped start a, a technology company, uh, went back uh, to school and got my, uh, my MBA at MIT. Um, and uh, after that, you know, I was always drawn to, I think growing up in the business, you know, I, I worked, uh, <laughs> worked weekends, I worked holidays, I worked summers, uh, you know, in the business, whether it was in the back office, uh, helping out however possible, or even selling gold charms by weight back in the, uh, in the eighties, that's how we did it. Um, and so I've always, I was always fascinated with it. And, and after business school, I actually went to, uh, work for a merchandise optimization software company. So basically it was a company that, that helped big retailers use analytics and technology to make smarter business decisions, especially around merchandising and markdown optimization. Um, and so our customers were, you know, Bloomingdale's, The Gap, Ann Taylor, Nordstrom, you know, really big companies with scale. Um, and it was fascinating because even in those large companies, there were still, you, you could see retail, I believe, is very there's traditional and then there's old fashioned and retails both. You know, I love, I love the traditional side, I can, but some ways the old fashioned side holds us back. But a lot of these large companies were still doing things by gut and by art uh, without the science to back it up. And, and by no means am I saying that there is no room for art. I actually, I'm a big believer in, in the art side of the business, but it's that melding of art and science. I think that that's where our companies really succeed. 
And so working for that company that was eventually, it was called Profit Logic, and it was eventually acquired by Oracle. Um, it really just rekindled my, my interest in getting into retail in a much you know, deeper way. And at the time, uh, again, 15 years ago, uh, Longs had expanded. Uh, we had, you know, we had, we had different locations um, and we really were looking to grow and step on the gas and needed support on the business side. And we're thinking about bringing in, you know, some outsiders, but at that stage of my career, uh, I was just newly engaged and um, just, it just felt like a right fit at the time with my rekindling of like, I want to get into this retail. I've, I've, it's in my blood. You were the outsider, I guess, because, you know, you talk about tradition and old fashioned values. You know, if you, if you haven't grown up from the age of five years old at the bench, you know, <laughs> polishing diamonds or, or, you know, break, breaking down watches, then you, you kind of, you're not really in the club, are you? Well, that's I, I'm a weird hybrid because on the one hand, up until you know through through my teenage years when I was at home, I, I would work in the business all the time. I no, I wasn't on the bench. Uh, more on the business side, more on the selling side. Um, so I, I always had that familiarity with it and the relationships with people. Um, but it wasn't until uh, really, geez, I'm trying to think in my in my 30s that I decided to come back in the business. So I, I did have that different perspective, which I think has been a really a benefit to the company. I don't want to say it's an advantage, but it's definitely a benefit to the company to have that outside perspective and that broader point of view. No, I think that I think that is very interesting. You having that Wall Street experience, the MBA, the, the entrepreneurship. Uh, I mean, did you, did you come in bursting with ideas, and you and Judd were having to to work these things out between you? No, you know, I, I, Judd and I. I'm very fortunate. My brother and I, we've always got along beautifully, which is funny because now as a parent, I'm looking at my kids and, and uh, who are similar ages uh, apart and, and trying to see if they'll have the same relationship. Uh, but my brother and I have always had a great relationship, always great mutual respect. And what's, what's great about our working relationship, and this includes my father too, is we have all have very different interests. So my, my brother, he loves product, he loves to sell. Um, and although in any family business, even one like ours, where we have you know, 100 plus employees, y'all wear a lot of hats at all times. There's no question. And we all have to know a little bit about everything, but that, that product and sales uh, focus is not, is not where I spend my time. I'm more on the business side. So overseeing all aspects of the business. So it actually works, works beautifully where we defer to each other. Um, and uh, it's been a very harmonious relationship for the most part. Okay. Well, I wasn't suggesting anything, anything other than that. <laughs> well, you said hash it out. We didn't know we, we, we share, you know, it's, it's, it's my father, my brother and I, we, I think we all share the same vision. I think we have different approaches as to how to get there. Um, but I think, you know, there's the, there's the old adage that, you know, when family businesses work well, they're amazing. And when they, when they're bad, they're horrible. We're, we're lucky that we are on the side where, again, that mutual respect, it just, it works well. We defer to each other. We've never, we've never had to go to any kind of legal document to see who has the legal, you know, who has the vote. <laughs> we don't have to do that. <laughs> we well, just decide. Yeah. That's a good sign. And, and if John is kind of on this, on the sales and the commercial side, I mean, you know, I, I know what you mean about your, um, your, your role is, is, to, is to look long-term, I guess, and think strategically, but are you also involved in, in the buying side of things and putting together the brands that you think best represent longs? Oh yeah, no. My my brother and I are both the, the key points of contact with all the brands in terms of relationships. Um, you know, to be totally upfront, I'm I'm not going to be picking the assortments, whether it's jewelry or timepieces. Uh, we have a team of buyers that's you know really good at that. But in terms of relationship management, general direction of uh, you know who who are we betting on, who are we investing in, um, and 
um, you know, just the holistic relationship of, and, and all aspects of our business. I'm the one that pulls it all together between marketing, buying, uh, selling, all of that. Right. And you got, and you have, uh, I think five stores at the moment across, uh, across New England and Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Are they all, uh, do they all have more or less the same brands or and the same division between let's say fine jewelry and, and, and fine watches? Yeah. Um, and we, we are, we are on track to opening our sixth store in, uh, in December, which I can come back to. Um, that that's, which is an exciting one. Say again. I'm going to ask about that one, yeah. Okay, good. All right. I, I assumed you knew, but I just want to make sure. Um, so our existing stores, we're a fairly balanced business. Um, so between, you know, for us, and they're roughly the same size, uh, between timepieces, you know, jewelry, and then what I'll call bridal, which is engagement rings and wedding bands in our in our vernacular. Um, that That's, you know, that's, that's how we've always liked to run the business while those percentages certainly shift as things like, you know, Rolex takes off. Um, they generally are within, it's a nice balance for us. And we like that by design, um, both from a business standpoint, because it's good to diversify a little bit as much as you can within the jewelry business, but also because, you know, we're very driven towards being someone's key jeweler and, and buying timepiece, you know, relationship. And so we, we want to, we don't want to be only the company that, someone looks to for certain occasions, we want to be there for all occasions. Um, we find that once you have that relationship, once you have that credibility with the customer to be able to leverage that and be that trusted, trusted source of nice things, uh, it, it just fits for us. That's just our DNA. Um, uh, the brands are fairly consistent across the stores. So we have Rolex in all of our stores. Um, some of the watch brands we do mix up beyond that. Um, you know, most of them are in two or three doors each. Um, and that just serves us well, given the size of our market. We are, four stores are in Massachusetts, as you mentioned. One, one is in the financial district of Boston, which is like the Wall Street of Boston uh, to compare it to New York. And the others are in the surrounding suburbs, including uh, you know, one in, in Southern New Hampshire. And, and again, I don't know how much you know the area, but Southern New Hampshire, Nashua is only uh, roughly half an hour north of Boston. I mean, it's practically in, uh, it's practically in Massachusetts. And uh, our, our store is about 200 yards from the Massachusetts border. Uh, Nashua is a, the great thing about Nashua, it is sales tax free uh, and people will drive up there in order to save a significant amount of tax from almost every other state around. Um, okay. So that, that's turned into a great store for us. Okay, well, I'm going to look, look into that a little, little bit more detail. Um, and, and, and it looks like your, your anchor brands, obviously Rolex, but uh, also Cartier, Amiga, Brightling, Tudor. Yep, yep. And, uh, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And how 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 has that side of the business developed? Has it become a, a larger part of your business? You said you wanted to keep a certain amount of balance, but uh, you know the, sure. the American watch market seemed to really lift off a couple of years ago, and um, a lot of retailers have said they've had a pretty pretty good time in 2019, and, and not too bad in 2020. Yeah. No. Totally agree. I mean, Rolex is leading the charge for us on that one. That that brand, it, it's extraordinary what they do and how. Their long-term focus pays short-term dividends for us recently. I mean, it's pretty, it, there's not too many companies that I think have that consistency of, of focus and, and how it's paying off for us. Um, yeah, I would say overall, you know, we love the watch business. We love um, selling fine timepieces. We love, uh, like a lot of people here are very passionate about watches. Um, and, you know, for us, again, it's part of that, that, off, that, that broader offering. So it, it brings in a traffic that we love um, often our watch uh, customers become great fine jewelry customers and vice versa. Mm. But, but it also requires a huge investment and a, and a never-ending, 
seems, you know, to keep that Rolex account, you know, you've got to be putting in the shopping shops, then they want a boutique, and then they want a service centre, and uh, you know, all these trained professionals. So you got you've got to keep you've got to keep backing yourself and putting the money in. Yes, yes. I mean, I think. It, you know, if we're going to take Rolex as an example, and I, I think they're probably the best one, they are incredibly demanding, um, but it, but it works because what they're asking to do is create a global standard. I mean, how many company companies are, are, are of that stature in terms of brand awareness and quality of brand and don't sell a single watch to an end user? I mean, they are relying on us globally, right? It's extraordinary. Um and so for them to be relying on this network of, I don't know how many thousands of, of retailers around the world, it works only if they, they demand, okay, everybody, this is the rules of the game and you need to invest. Um, and so I, I get it and I, I like it because it, it's a level playing field. And it's, again, from an economic standpoint, it's well worth it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it'd be harder if they were making demands and it wasn't performing, that's, that's a totally different ball game, but they've never, uh, you know, in recent years, that's, that's not who they are. Um, and I think, and I think they're realistic about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, they'll never compete with you, which is, you know, a lot, a lot of the other watch brands will compete with you. Exactly. Uh, it makes it it makes it easier to want to be a great partner when they're so investing. They're they're investing in us in all these different ways too. Um, the other brands, yeah, I, I mean, you you mentioned it's a huge investment. The the inventory, the you know the the regular flow of new product, uh, the the advertising, the build outs. Yeah, it, it is a, uh, you know, the, as the businessman in my company, I have to always watch that carefully to say, is this a, is this a good return on investment? Um, and that's why we've stayed very focused in the watch world, that we're uh, big believers in, if we're going to make this investment, we want it to be with a brand that does perform as much as it feels great to have a great brand in your store. If it's not actually performing, what's the point? Um, you know, what's you're going to have a long-term future. And I think, again, that outside perspective has helped us because, um, it, it's easier, I think, to check that ego at the door and say, we don't need this because it's, although it will feel good and look good at the end of the day, it's not going to be a smart business decision for us. Yeah. No, I, mean, I can see that it's a reasonably tightly curated uh, list of brands that you, that you work with and, um, you know, a commercial list of brands as well. So that's obviously something that, uh, that means a lot to you. Do you I mean, do you, do you look further sometimes at some of the the lower, lower volume independent brands, they seem to be having a bit of a moment right now and customers want to see something new. So companies that you know, might only be making 20 watches, maybe 100 watches, maybe up to 1,000 watches, these, these are having quite a good time at the moment, it feels to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think there's this, there's this movement to, whether it's... Uh, in, in other in other aspects of retail, it's it's custom, it's personalization, and I think that's trickled over into the the, the watch world where people like unique things. Um, you know, if you want something that is uh, you know broadly available, it has to be special. And if it's broadly available and not special, you know what's what's the value? I'd rather have something that's in, incredibly unique. And if you look at even the rise of you know, websites like Etsy, where, you know, you have these makers of, of all sorts of things are, are just flourishing right now. I think it's because of that. People love the idea of that that was made for me or so rare. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so tell me a little bit about this this year. I mean, firstly, tell me how, how things were looking coming into this year. I, you know, I assume you had a, a strong balance sheet and, and uh, a strong 20, 2019. But, you know, tell me, tell me about that, that COVID quarter and how you know, right. frightening it was to begin with and how you, how you sort of worked your way through it. If you have to make me relive it again, okay. 
Um, so we, no, 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 it's, it's good. It's a good lesson. Uh, so we came off a record 2019, uh, flying, uh, really, you know, all cylinders, almost every part of the business was, was flourishing. Economy was strong. We had, we have been uh, pretty relentless about, uh, trying, you know, investing in our brand and, and grabbing market share. Um, so whether that's, whether traditional marketing, more uh, innovative digital approaches, we're just, we just we just don't like to sit still. Our DNA is to always try to move forward, and if we're and if we are treading water, it feels to us like we, we're moving backwards. And that's just always been our philosophy. And so um, we we were coming out of this year, and even the first two months of 2020 were incredibly strong, record breaking for us. And then and then you know the the, the breaks were slammed on for us and everybody. Um, it, the, I think the hardest part for me in COVID was the uncertainty of how bad is it and how long will this last? And I know we haven't uh, dove too much into it, but um, the opening, you know, we, we, this Rolex boutique that we're planning to open um, in December, you know, that, that, that was a long time in the making, you know, a long time uh, exploring the opportunities, finding the right spot, working closely with Rolex on that. And that lease was signed last summer. So we had made a commitment um, and we're well into the way of, uh, into the, the steps of designing and, and building the store. And so that just added just another layer of the uncertainty of how, how bad is this going to be, this pandemic? Uh, what's the impact on business going to be? And even when we do reopen, um, how, how much is, is it, are we going to be affected by it? And so, you know, adding all that up, April was a horrible time because we just, we just didn't know how to predict things. And we had never, you know, in all of my, you know, uh, living through the recession in the business back in 2008, 2009, you know, we, we knew how to handle tough times. We never planned on revenues going not to zero, but, but down from, I mean, significantly, <laughs> significantly. Massachusetts, just as a side note, uh, was similar to New York and the Northeast here in, in the United States. Um, our governor here was incredibly conservative. So we were shut down in Massachusetts for three full months. Um, and, and, you know, when we could not have a customer in the store during that time, as time went on, we were able to do a little bit of, uh, we certainly were able to do some e-commerce, uh, which helped, um, curbside pickup eventually, but really that was at the very end. And so that was, that was really hard. Um, did it, did it affect all five of your stores or was it, were your city center stores more, um, affected for longer and harder? Uh, no, so we, all four Massachusetts stores were impacted similarly because it was a statewide decree. Uh, that end of March, we shut down, middle of June, we could start reopening up. Wow. Um, New Hampshire, fortunately, um, is uh, a little bit different. They, they relaxed things a little bit earlier and we were able to open uh, our store in Nashua in mid-May. We missed Mother's Day. Uh, the state didn't allow us to open until mid-May. Uh, but that was a huge help because now at least we had a, a point of sale open where people could visit. And, and the amazing thing, like, yeah, so we, you know, how do we navigate through with two things? One is, you know, you just plan for as best you can, given what you know, um, which means plan for a pretty rough second half of the year. Um, and then, you know, the second thing is let's keep our people occupied, busy. And how, how do we turn this as an, into an opportunity to move forward? So while we were shut down, our employees were training relentlessly. Uh, we actually launched a new uh, mobile clienteling tool. So on their phones, they were able to access um, uh, product information, contact customer, text with customers in a way that they hadn't been able to do. Everything was in store before that. 
we were able to make it remote. So as we were relaunching, uh, they had a lot of visibility and transparency and then communication tools with their customers. Uh, we, really, we, we relaunched our website, uh, which was something that you know, we, we had wanted to do in a while and took the opportunity to do it. So it was that, I think that attitude of let's not sit still, let's lay the groundwork for you know, post-COVID life here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then when we reopened, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard this elsewhere, um, demand was really strong. I mean, we, we saw um, in most parts of our business, so certainly in, in timepieces, uh, certainly in Rolex, uh, but really most brands have done quite well since we've reopened. There was pent up demand. And this, this trend of people are trapped, if not at home anymore, at least in their, their local area. They're not traveling. They're not spending that money. They're not, um, they're not going out and having fine dining the same way. So we, there, there was a lot more disposable income. And uh, we found people wanted to cheer themselves up. And there's certainly a shortage of so many luxury goods. You know, Try to buy a boat and a car right now. You can't. <laughs> there's just very few available and it's a long waiting list. So jewelry, I think, became one of those things. Say again? More chance of buying a Rolex to steal steal Daytona. (laughs) It's true. It's absolutely no chance. Exactly. Yeah, I'm saying it's more like one in a million as opposed to no chance. No, so it was, I think we've really benefited from that. And you know, my concern as we as we went through this is first of all, how do we how do we operate safely, right? So we have uh, what's what's changed. Uh, We're open five days a week, not seven. Uh, because we want to have chances to get organized, clean the store. Um, the door is locked and we have a concierge in every store, uh, at every door who, who talks to people as they walk in to make sure that we put them in the right place, uh, give them the right person and give them an amazing experience um, and turn them away. If, if there's something that, they, that we can provide, they don't come in and walk around because it's just not, it's just not a safe. Um, so those kind of things are, have been you know, working against us. Um, but in spite of that, we found that demand has been, you know, pretty, pretty strong and pretty extraordinary. We'll see what the fourth quarter holds. I am a little concerned about, you know, where we're going. Uh, but I think that's, again, just the fear of the unknown. I've heard, I mean, I've heard from a lot of other retailers that, that uh, conversion rates have just been through the roof. Because people, people, people making the effort to come to stores are much more purposeful. They probably made an appointment in advance. They know what they're after. So, so your time is actually more um, productive, I guess, in store. Absolutely. Uh, traffic is down, conversions way up, and that's, that's led to solid business. 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you seeing any, any rise in average transaction values, for example? Because people, when they are going to buy something, they're going to spend that bit more? Absolutely. No, we're seeing that across the board. Um, people want nice things. If they're going to get something, um, they want nice things. And it's, it's great that retail, retail therapy is, is strong right now, that people want to feel better about about life, and you know, traditionally, over centuries, <laughs> this is, jewelry has been one of those things that helps people feel better. Uh, so I think you know we're fortunate. You know, I have friends in the restaurant business and friends in in the travel-related businesses. You know, they they the cars they're dealt right now are very challenging, and we're very fortunate that ours are. You know, that the in a in a world of uh, you know fewer people coming into the stores. Um, we, we've been able to turn that to our advantage and have it be a good opportunity for us. That's, that's just blind luck when it comes to like where you are in retail. Um, but we'll, we'll try to make the most of it. I never believe in luck. I believe in hard work. You'll probably get, you get a lot luckier the harder you work in my experience. Uh, Absolutely. I agree. I agree. But there's some parts of retail that are just, it's, uh, what, there's nothing what, you can do. Or running an airline. I mean, what can you do? 
what can you do? What can you do? A friend of mine is a, uh, you know, he's, he's changing the business. He's an apparel store. He's, he's going more casual, but his core business has always been men's suits. People are not buying men's suits right now, right? And, you know, we're not on the jewelry side of things. We're not selling occasion jewelry anymore because there's no black tie events. There's no big weddings. There's no, you know, big parties. Um, and that's, those are the kind of adjustments we've made and we'll have to keep making. Yeah. I guess your bridal business must have been more difficult, right? I mean, people, people must be postponing weddings. So, you know, it's remarkable. I would have thought so. If you had asked me in April, what's going to happen? I would say that business is going to be horrible when we reopen. We reopen that the economy is going to be terrible. The stock market is going to be terrible. I mean, I'm so glad to be wrong on all these fronts. Uh, and the bridal business, I think couples who survived the quarantine said, okay, we're good. Let's get, let's get married or let's get engaged. So actually the engagement ring business has been very strong. Um, and the wedding band business, I think, you know, a lot of people for a while put off their weddings. And some of my employees actually were, were planning on getting married and, and, and canceled the, the wedding date and put it off. But now they're just, they're doing small group weddings and they're doing, you know, small family events and they're just, or they're just doing it privately and then planning on a big party when they're able to sometime, hopefully next year. Um, and so we're actually seeing a lot of these, of these people just saying, what are we waiting for? Let's get married and we'll figure out the right celebration later. And I guess if they're not having to pay for 200, 300 guests, they can, they can afford a bigger rock. There you go. That's, again, working to, to our uh, both lucky and, and hard work is leading us to some, go. some good opportunities there. Yeah. Uh, now, if, I, uh, if, I, if I know a business that's very focused on growth and is entrepreneurial and, uh, you know, in, uh, an, an MBA educated CEO, quite, quite, often, quite often those businesses could be more leveraged than, than more, tradi more traditional businesses, more, you know, always reinvesting the, the profits rather than sitting on cash and, and that sort of thing. I mean, was that, would, would that be a, a fair description of, of how you usually are or, or not? Well, I mean, it, well I, I'd rather not comment on our balance sheet other than to say we're in, we're in a good position, but I'll just say as a philosophy, we've always, we've been more driven to reinvest what this company makes into into a bigger engine, into a better foundation, rather than just let's just you know sit tight, uh, accumulate uh, you know cash or build up inventory. That, that's never really been our our mo. It's always been around what's what's the next opportunity? Where do we grow? And again, that's that's why this Rolex boutique has has been so perfect for us because it's we're we're ready to to you know make a big investment in in where we're going. And okay. and that one feels that's, you know, really good. That's the story I really want to get into into as well. Um, I mean, I, I suppose to put it in some in some context, you say that you um, you more or less had things lined up and agreed last summer, and then you come into March, April, and you're uh, you know all you want to do is cut costs, I assume, and the first thing you look at is Christ, we don't want to be opening a you know a, a Rolex boutique until this thing this thing is well in our rearview mirror. But I guess you can't. You you want to capitalize on that opportunity if you possibly can. Of course, no, we're long term focused and. Uh, we never doubted that it, even during the dark days of the quarantine and the shutdown, we never doubted this was absolutely the right long-term move for us. You know, did I have a moment of doubt that this was the end of the party for the next few years and that people weren't be, it, it wasn't that I, would, I doubted the power of Rolex, but I think it was more of an overall economic concern of will people be buying luxury items on the same magnitude? And then that will that trickle down to decreased demand in Rolex, but pretty quickly, even while we were shut down with the phone calls that we were getting and the demand for these watches, we, we knew that, that this, this was gonna stand the test of, of, of um, the pandemic. 
Yeah, I mean, the demand has been off the scale. I was looking, I was looking on the secondary market today at the new, the prices for the new cell mariners, and you know they're going for hundred percent over retail already. It's it's incredible. I mean, it's really remarkable, and I I their discipline in not. Uh, really growing supply. I mean, and, and they've taken steps to do that. I know that supply is is better than it's ever been, but for them to not capitalize on the short-term demand and still be focused on long-term and to say, everybody's slow and steady, you know, you can, let's, let's just keep growing things, but slowly, I, it's, it's, that discipline is so remarkable. Yeah. And I guess they're still churning out precious metal day dates and date justs and all you want is oh, yeah. pubs and, and GMTs. Yeah, no, I think like every like every retail, uh, every uh, excuse me, Rolex dealer on the planet, we are we are fighting for more of our fair share of you know shifting those units into precious metals because the demand is there. I mean, we've never we've never had such a long wait list for uh, for gold pieces than we have right now. I mean, it's pretty and again, middle of a pandemic, it's extraordinary, and we can't we can't get them, <laughs> you know, as much as we as we want to. Good, it's good good problem to have because it means we'll still have uh, demand next year. Uh, but it's a, it's an interesting situation when you know you could satisfy a lot more customers. But they are, their commitment to again slow and steady and quality it 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 pays off in the long run for all of us. Yeah. So you're not too frustrated by you know empty cabinets and wishing you had more product. No. I, so part of me, of course, wishes we had more because the demand is there, and we never like to stall on demand. We want to make as many customers happy today as we can. Um, and as many happy as many customers happy this Christmas as possible. At the same time, if you, I think, if you ask any any Rolex jeweler on the planet, um, we're all our business is growing. Everybody's business is growing. So how how can we how can we say you're not taking care of us? How can we say that you're not giving us the opportunity to grow our business when the numbers show it otherwise? Uh, say again. I don't think anybody's suggesting the Rolex isn't isn't supportive and you know. Just a phenomenal business to work with. Um, so, so yep. tell me about tell me about the Rolex boutique. You know, when, where is it? How big is it going to be? When's it going to open? Yeah, so um, it is. We believe it's going to be the biggest in the United States. Um, uh, the the biggest boutique. It's uh, the entire space is about four thousand six hundred square feet. Uh, most of which is going to be Rolex selling floor. Um, it is two stories. Um, uh, uh, the, you know, the ground level and the second floor. Um, it is on, it, the, the address is 8 Newberry Street. Um, and it is uh, on that, that first block of Newberry Street where we've seen a real flight of luxury stores opening. So uh, Cartier moved their, their store and, and, and bought a building and, and made, turned it into a, you know, the Boston, um, uh, the mansion, uh, their version of the mansion in Boston. Van Cleef, uh, Richard Meal. I mean, it's all it's all on that first block now, which is pretty extraordinary. Bulgari, Chanel, um, and so when we when we uh, had it, you know, when we when we proposed the opportunity of of building a boutique, that that was really the only block that made sense to us because it, it just if you're going to have Bond Street in London, if you're going to have you know Fifth Avenue in New York, uh, this this block on Newbury Street in Boston was our mini version of it. You know, we're a smaller city than some of these, but that that was our you know, pinnacle of luxury shopping. So for us, that's that's the one block that made sense. Um, and after looking at multiple locations, this is the one that had the two-story visibility. One of the challenges with Newbury Street is it's a lot of old buildings. Um, and sometimes the store frontage is not ideal for retail. The, the address might be great, 
but small entrance, you know, little to no visibility in the windows. The great thing about this two-story property is we have, you know, a, a very uh, a vertical exposure um, that's that's pretty extraordinary, and we're very excited about what it's going to look like. And when's it opening? Uh, we are trying as hard as we can to get open in December. Um, I think there's a real chance of that, uh, but we need a lot to come together. Originally, we were scheduled to open up in September, October, uh, but COVID absolutely impacted, you know, timelines just in terms of manufacturing, design, everything. We just we, we lost a few months. Okay, sure. Now, I feel, I feel a little bit uncomfortable asking you about this on the first time we've actually spoken, but I'm following, you know, what's been, what I've been told is that uh, Chow Tai Phuc is a joint venture partner in, in this Rolex boutique and, is, uh, and you've got plans to work together uh, on a number of additional stores. Is that something you can talk about? I can, I can say that's absolutely not true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that, uh, that is... Say again? Where might that rumor have, uh, have come from? I'm not sure how to answer that, okay. uh, but I can tell you. I but I can tell you that is not uh, that is not true. We we know uh, we know we know Chow Tai Phuc. We've had a long relationship with um, with their memoir brand in the United States. Uh, so I, I have I have spent some time getting to know the folks there. Uh, but we are we do not have a partner in the business, and they are not involved in this in any way. Okay. I think you know with with Chow Tai Phuc, they are. Uh, they're, they're certainly a powerhouse uh, retailer, and I think they're, they're interested in growing their business in a lot of different ways, but they are not involved in this or involved in us in any way. Okay, well, that's clear enough. I mean, it, just, it, was, it would have led on, you know, you've got Bucra coming in from Europe, you've got the Watch of Switzerland group coming in from Europe. Chow Tai Phuc is, you know, the daddy of them all. <laughs> yes. We play four times bigger than those two companies put together. Yeah, and, and I, by the way, I don't mind you asking. I just want to be very clear as to, to where we are, um, and I would I would answer it differently if the facts were different. Um, I will say that, and I'll I'll pivot a little bit because it's it's um, and if you want to go down this road, great, and if you you don't, that's totally fine too. You know what's interesting to me is yeah, Bucher and and uh, Watch of Switzerland uh, certainly have a foothold here. You know, I'm, I think with my background in in finance and investment banking, you know, I I look at this industry and I think. There, what's, what's amazing about it is how fragmented the independent jeweler is in the United States and how you have all these incredible, strong local brands run by families. You know, I worry about, and, it, and it's, it is absolutely endured for generations. I worry about the long-term sustainability of that. Um, you have, when I say worry, I guess I, I, I shouldn't say worry. I'm, I'm thinking about, and, uh, and, and I don't believe that that's sustainable to the same degree uh, you have massive consolidation in the industry even before COVID, you know, just stores closing. You have generations of, uh, or, or you have operators, many of whom are in their, you know, late stage of their career, 60, 70, 80 year old, that don't have children in the business. You know, my father was, is fortunate he has, you know, two 40 plus year old uh, you know, kids in the business right now to take it on for another generation. Um, I, I think there's going to be uh, a fair amount of not just companies going away, but I think some of these independent jewelers are going to end up consolidating under, under um, uh, good operators. And I think that, that to me is really intriguing. And I think that especially companies like, uh, you know, us as an example, and, and pretty much every major market has a multi-door chain that they built the infrastructure to run multiple stores. And you start to see it, you know, uh, let's see, Finks recently uh, purchased a store in, in ten a Rolex dealer in Tennessee. Uh, so you're starting to see that. You're starting to hear about 
um, uh, you know, some really nice stores, some old names, many of them are even Rolex stores, are, are, are either on the market or thinking about putting themselves in the market. So that, that to me is fascinating. And I think that um, we're actually reaching a, a tipping point in the industry where these local brands should continue, but they might be under, and I think they'll continue under, you know, American operators. Um, but I think that they're going to be perhaps operated out of a different market. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's somewhat driven by the, by the Rolex side of things again, where, you know, the only, the only way it seems to get that allocation that everyone is so desperate for is to just keep on investing. So to keep on right. scale and, you know, if watches of Switzerland, Groupies and Bucra are able to twist the arm of Rolex in Geneva to give them more watches, well, guys like you have to sort of create your own scale somehow to, to um, compete with that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think what, you know, what, what Bucher and Washer Switzerland have the advantage of, in addition to the relationship that's, that's direct, you know, mothership to mothership in Geneva, um, I think they, they have the, the deep pockets where they can say, we'll do what, we need, what you need us to do. We'll, we'll, we will elevate the, the visibility, the brand, the build out without any hesitation. And I think um, most US operators are comfortable doing that, but not all are. And I think that's, a, that's, their, that's where their opportunity is. So, I mean, looking looking to the future, then beyond beyond this year and into the next few years, I mean, are you in the market for, for acquisitions? Are you going to be part of this consolidation? Because there's quite a few independents up in in the New England area and the, the you know the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, I think um, the short answer is I think I'd rather I'd rather be driving the bus than than probably you know throwing the keys to somebody else. I think that's just that's just more interesting to us, and I think that. As we've looked at, you know, we, we, there's there's a number of, um, you know, we retailers in the U.S. Those of us that are especially are non-competitive, we all talk to each other. Like there's there's amazing relationships between because we're all fighting the same battles every day. We're overcoming the same issues, and, and because of that, I think there's a, there's an incredible amount of inefficiencies. And so we talk to each other to try to help with that. You know, how did, did you ever tackle this? How did you overcome that problem? Did you see any opportunities? Have you used this software solution? Um, you know, we we all do that, but I I think that. Uh, companies again like ours that have made that investment and figured something out, often those solutions scale. And so I, I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of us scaling what we've learned into other markets. Yeah, but 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 nothing imminent right now. We're focused on the boutique. Uh, we're focused on getting out of the pandemic. But I, I think whether it's 2021, 2022, you're gonna you start to see some some action there in the United States that you haven't seen in a long time. Right. And, and one of the things that, that uh, gets in the way of those of that consolidation and or acquisitions is the brands themselves. You know, I, I would imagine sure. you're, you're not going to want to acquire a, uh, a store that doesn't have Rolex. In fact, you'd probably uh, love to buy a store that's got Paddock or AP as well. So, uh, but then you you know you you almost have to get permission from the brands before you can even start that conversation. Uh, I think the brands, the, the three brands we were talking, AP, Patek, Rolex, they're all partners in our business. You know, maybe not from a legal or economic standpoint, they don't own shares. But I think in, in, for, for most of us, the way we run our business is in partnership with them. And so to me, it makes sense that then any acquisition opportunity, whether they have that brand or to me, it, it actually is very intriguing to find someone that doesn't have that. And maybe that's a market that they are looking at and they just haven't found the right partner yet. Um, but there's no question they're going to be part of this process. They're going to hold a lot of the cards um, in, in terms of how it goes. Um, although I, you know, I, I do think I don't want to get too much away from the watch world. I, I don't think this is this hinges on on timepieces and the major watch brands. I just think that is a major part of it, though. And that's 
that that is one where you you do have these folks that are looking to to die. they're going to look to retire in the next few years and it's it's a remarkable industry it's hard to sell a store you've got the brands to worry about you've got the you know who, who's actually selling this stuff is it a relationship with the owner is it a relationship with the sales team it's just a very very tricky business to, it, it's hard to sell a retail store yeah yeah well i mean it's good good to see uh you know, young entrepreneurial guys like you guys like you um you know in the business and making moves and uh yeah it's going to be exciting to watch it is. No, it's going to be an interesting few years. And I, I actually think as much as, you know, I, I certainly don't wish COVID on anybody. And I don't mean that. I mean, the, the COVID situation, not not individually COVID. Um, I don't wish it, there's it's accelerating some things that were were happening anyway. And I think we're going to find the next few years are are more interesting, more active on so many different fronts. You know, brands, I think, are going to make moves that they haven't made in a long time. And I think some of the articles that, you know, you, you guys are writing about just how things are changing. Um, I think that's, and changing quicker. I think a lot of that is because of this pandemic. It's accelerated, which is interesting. Yeah. 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 Okay, well, I wish you the best of luck with it. I hope you have a great uh, holiday season and, uh, you know, the momentum continues into, into next year. And best of luck with the, with the Rolex store opening. I can't wait to get over and see it. I can't wait for you to come. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll be, are you traveling now? What's your story? Well, no, things just got worse over here in the UK. We've just gone into another, another lockdown here and, uh, you know, no travel, no, no nothing at the moment. Uh, I'm in the office at the moment, but on Thursday, I've got to close the office again. Oh, I'm sorry. That's just, that, that's hard. You know, I was speaking, um, actually one of the retail groups, there was a webinar and a Harvard business school professor was talking and, and was talking about the, the, the lockdown uh, in the UK now. And it was, and it was interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize this. It's, it's almost preventative in terms of mental health to be able to get open for, for the holidays. That's what he said, uh, which I, I thought was interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really depressing. I mean, you know, we went through, we went through the first lockdown. Uh, I'm the managing director of a business with, we, we have 15 employees, a few, few million dollars turnover, and we went through, went through the exact same thing you would have done. It's like, where can I cut the costs, and uh, how do I keep everybody? working and motivated and, and all that sort of thing. We really came through it pretty, pretty well, pretty strong. Um, but all the way through the recovery, it was like, God help us all if there's another lockdown. And, and here we are. In some ways, the timing's not too terrible because you know, we've, we've more or less closed out our business for the rest of this year uh, in terms of advertising deals. Um, but uh, yeah, let's just, let's just hope that Boris Johnson sticks to his word and we're, we open up again on the 2nd of December because if it drags on to Christmas, then there's going to be a lot of a lot of blood and blood out. Oh, I, I tell you, and again, this is not watch or jewelry specific. I think all retail. If 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 we lose Christmas, it, it's just. I mean, the, the number of companies that will uh, will disappear is just going to be extraordinary. It, the, there's no retailer that's that's. Or I shouldn't say no. Very very few retailers are built to withstand a year without Christmas. We can get by, closing in the spring, closing in the fall. You know, a little bit here and there. I don't think anybody in any form of retail can really get through without Christmas. So hopefully. Yeah. So uh, where you are, it's preventative medicine. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what we're seeing here. So the, re you know, the retailers I'm speaking to in the UK are saying, you know, we can just about, we can live with November being shut down because there'll be a lot yeah. of demand into, into December. But if you can't fulfill that demand yeah. in December, then there's, there's going to be real problems. Hey, real quick before I let you go, can I ask you as much as you can say the, the Chow Tai Fook rumor? Where did that come from? Like, give me an idea. I don't. You don't have to give me specific names, but just tell me like what channels. I can't reveal my sources, but I've been speaking to a lot of um, you know, East, East Coast retailers, and as you say, you all talk to each other. 
I'm surprised it's, you know, there yeah. must be something to that rumor, otherwise it, it wouldn't have been said. Uh, I, it's, it's, if you come visit, we'll have a off the record cup of coffee or a drink or something. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where, uh, where it came from. But what I told you today is that there is not, there's nothing going on and um, there's, they're not involved with me in any way. Okay, that's cool. I mean, it'd be exciting if they right. were. I mean, I, you know, I, I wish, you know, it'd be, it'd be a brilliant story. But uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I, I didn't run the, I didn't run the rumor as a story because I wanted to talk to you first and find, find out uh, from the horse's yeah. mouth. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. All right. Well, good seeing you. You too. Thanks, Clay. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.